You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hi, I'm Donna Murphy, and you're listening to And the Tony Goes To. It's a look back at Broadway's most magical night, and all of the winners reminisce with delight. With their talent and brilliance, they always impress. And the Tony Goes To, my special guest. Have you ever dreamed of winning a Tony Award? Did you ever practice your Tony acceptance speech in the bathroom mirror? Did you grow up watching the Tony Awards every year? Do you have a collection of Tony Award shows on VHS tape that you refuse to throw out? Well, then this is the podcast for you. Every week, I interview your favorite Tony Award winners, and together we go down memory lane as my guests share intimate and never-before-shared details about their Tony experience. By the end of every episode, you're going to feel like you just won a Tony. Welcome to And the Tony Goes To. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. And the award goes to Donna Murphy, Passion. glad you're here, Mom and Dad. Uh, I want to thank everyone associated with passion. The courageous producers, Steve and James, for trusting me with this incredible role and for guiding me with their, their conviction and their artistry. And our cast and crew and orchestra and designers, for all of you, for your commitment and patience and humor Everyone needs a good mole joke. And um, uh, God has blessed me with so many um, opportunities and people who have challenged me and given me an opportunity to learn and grow. Mom and dad, my family, friends, agents, colleagues, (laughs) I thank you all. Joan Later, I love you, and I love you, Sean. Thank you for everything. Welcome, Donna Murphy. Hello. I am so happy you're here and that we got to listen to that speech together. And I'm wondering what sort of comes up for you in listening to it again. Well, what comes up for me is remembering being in my seat and We'll talk about sort of everything that preceded that 
I imagine. Um, yes. A little bit later, but yes. Um, that when I got on the stage and was given the award by the amazing Alan Alda, who I just had adored for many, many years and had this sense that even though I didn't know him, he was a real mensch. Um, so that was meaningful. And, and then I looked at the Tony and then the next thing I did immediately was look up to see if I could find my parents in the mezzanine, uh, or the balcony. I can't remember where they were. Um, and I found them. I mean, I looked and they were right, right where I looked and I did not know where they were sitting. I mean, I, I, I don't know that I ever saw the tickets. They were purchase tickets. They were not given to me. Um, but I just looked and I looked straight at them. And my mother like got so excited that I saw her. I thought she was going to fall over <laughs> into the orchestra because <laughs> she started, she jumped up and just started waving. Of course. Um, but I just was um, so thrilled that they were there for that moment. And I also had two of my sisters and a brother-in-law and my stepdaughter, Justine, my youngest stepdaughter. Um, so that, and, and I had so, my feelings were so full and I felt like there was, I had to make a choice to contain them to be able to try to say what I needed to say um, or hoped I would remember to say or think of to say. And, um, and yet I can hear the emotion in my voice in listening. And, um, and I also remember, I'm now recalling what I, didn't say. <laughs> and that's always, um, that's always tricky because it's, it's just, it's such a huge moment, particularly for me. That was the first time I ever originated a role on Broadway. It was the first time I'd ever been nominated for a Tony Award. It was the first time I had ever been to the Tony Awards. Um, and it all happened so fast off mm -hmm. of us opening. Right. I mean, I didn't even know we were, I, I don't know if we were, if, if this is possible that we were in previews and because I don't know if this is like allowed, but I feel like somebody told me about a nomination for a, an earlier award, like an uh, outer critics or a drama desk nomination. And we hadn't even opened if that's maybe they just were talking about them, I can't remember. But I was like, awards, award season. Wait, we're just opening the show. Like, awards were not on my radar, and because we were one of the last shows, if not the last show, to open in that season, um, we were opening very close to the cutoff date for certainly for the Tonys. And I don't know how the other awards worked, but anyway, it was just the last thing on my mind. And, and then it was just, it was, you know, the process of rehearsal was a whirlwind. The process of previews were an intense whirlwind. 
the um, opening the show, all of that was just, it was so much. And it, it just, as they say now, all the feels, all the feelings mm-hmm. throughout that. And then this. So it was like, this was this huge um, sort of combined celebration of just being there. And this is not, you know, just being falsely modest. Just being there was so huge. And a lot of it was connected to that I was there for that show that I had been acknowledged for that show and that performance collaborating with my, my idols in the musical theater and in the theater period, um, Stephen Sondheim and, and James Lapine and so many other people associated with the show that just, I felt so privileged and so, I really felt like now that I've done this, if if nothing else wonderful happens for me in my creative life, I've had I've 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 reached the heights. I've I I've traveled with the best of them. I've I've learned so much and I've had I have the privilege of telling this complicated, difficult story. Um that brought me so much joy and and the support that was the other thing is that I just was overwhelmed by the support of the community mm. so many people who were just who would say because I'd been in the business for a while um I had my first job when I was 20 and I think I was 35 when I received this award and I'd been working, you know, and, um, pretty solidly through that time, except for a short break that I took. Um, but so many people who were saying to me that it meant a lot to them to see that, you know, somebody who'd been doing good work for a while and was being recognized. And I wasn't, um, a TV or a movie star, and yet I'd been cast in a leading role. I hadn't, I wasn't a Broadway star at the time that I was cast in passion and that it, it imbued people with, with hope and uh, for their own lives and their careers. And it just made them feel good to see somebody that they had watched over the years and had, you know, have their ups and downs and, um, kindly expressed their respect for me and that it was meaningful, that was meaningful to them. And they were, you know, they were cheering, cheering me on. And that, I just felt like I was, you know, in the biggest, greatest group hug (laughs) that you could ever imagine. And, um, and for something that I would have paid to do that job. Right. I would have paid somebody to do that job. Okay, there we are with my usual brief, succinct answer to your first question. Dear God, help us. Who do I love interviewing more than you on the planet? Nobody. Nobody. Um, I want to talk about what it was for you uh, to collaborate, as you just mentioned, with 
with your heroes, Stephen mm-hmm. Sondheim and James Lapine. I want to know, you know, I, I'm not going to share with you something you don't already know, but I will repeat what Mr. Sondheim has said, which is when you came in to audition for what was originally the workshop of mm-hmm. passion, mm-hmm. Um, when you sang I Read to Live, which is a really important song in the musical, um, <laughs> it was basically ready to be performed publicly. He felt like, and I am slightly, um, I'm not quoting him exactly, but but the mm-hmm. sentiment was, had there been an audience, had the show begun previews the next day, the distance from where you were at that audition to where you went with the final performance of that song was a very short walk. Now, I don't know if you feel that way or if really it was an experience where you were able to step into the shoes of a character that you read in in sides or a script that were handed to you and there was an understanding very quickly of what to do with this part. Well, it wasn't instantaneous. But, you know, I got the audition, I was called about the audition, and I know we talked about this on uh, Little Known Facts, but um, I will. Do, it bears repeating that I got the material, I heard of the audition, I got the material, and I just said, there's no way I can come in tomorrow for this audition. Right. I, was, I was working another job at right. Lincoln Center. Hello and- again, right? Uh, hello again, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, I read this and I went, oh my God. Because first of all, it was coming from, as I said, uh, Stephen and, and James, who I just have meant, had meant so much in my life um, before this opportunity, just in the work that I was privileged to to view and listen to over and over and over again. And, uh, and I'd auditioned for them, um, a number of times on different projects. And, um, so I initially said, this is, this is something I so want to pursue. I would, I'm so excited about the idea of working on this, but I need to work on it. Otherwise they'll just get somebody sight reading basically you know, or close to it, right? This complicated song, and I, I, if I can't go in and give people a taste of what I, what I think I can do with a character, um, as a, as a departure point, you know, as a as a place to start, as as a place for them to then direct me from, um, but without that, I, I don't even know how to be grounded in the room, um, I'm. So I said, I, I can't go in tomorrow. And is there any other time they're seeing people? And at that time, they did not have another scheduled audition. But it all worked out. And I've told that story elsewhere. I went in uh, about four days later, and everything just fell into place. The show I was doing, I ended up with two, like two or three days off. Mm. It was an ensemble show, so that was not unheard of. And um, I just immersed myself. And that was the thing. When I really spent time with I Read, which was the first and only thing at that point was writ- that was written for Fosca to sing, as I understood it, the whole character was in that. Was in that. 
the whole character was in that song. Um, her intelligence, her self-loathing, her hunger, her desire to connect, um, her self-pity, um, her awkwardness, her forwardness, um, her hopefulness. They, they just It was everything. It was just all there. And but to be able to play all those things, or at least take a shot at it, I needed time to integrate the music and the words and and the woman. And it wasn't going to work for me to not have a sense of, of her physical life. Mm. And so I just sort of, you know, that three days, it was a little immersion into my imagined life of of this character and those circumstances. I knew there was a film. I didn't want to watch the film. I didn't want to get another person's performance in my head. I just really wanted it to come from the information that they provided me with and my imagination. And so, and I worked with Paul Ford, the wonderful pianist who at that time worked on all of Steve's shows and was really a partner with Paul Gemignani, our fantastic musical director and conductor. And they allowed me, I asked, could I play with the key? Because it was written in a real, like, just a, a more upper soprano range. And I could hit the notes, I could sing it, but I felt like the melancholy, and I discovered this, over those three days, the melancholy of this woman and also the weight of her illness um, and the weight of what she what she carried with her in terms of self-blame and shame. I just thought I I feel like it's it's in a lower key. And um, so I we played with keys and they said that's fine. And so that's what I did. So when I went into the room, I did feel like I really had a very clear intention of what I wanted to do, not for them, but with the character for myself. It's just what I wanted to play with and and let them see, you know, uh, not necessarily get the job. I kind of didn't believe that that was possible. I thought there's no way they're not going to hire Patty Lapone or Bernadette Peters for this job. I mean, mm -hmm. honestly, both of whom I think are just remarkable. And um, and had been people they've collaborated with before. Yes, exactly. And um, so, but I wanted to just, you know, do my best. And there was no way to go halfway with this. There was no way to sort of dip your toe in, for me anyway. And so I do, uh, but I do think there was a long there was still a long journey between what i did in that room as 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 deeply connected as i felt to it um there still was quite a journey from that to me performing it for an audience do but, you remember when you found out you got it yes it wasn't right away um and um, but it was, I feel like it was just a few days, mm -hmm. a few days. 
Um, and But I later was told that they knew. And yet I also was told that that was the first time he heard the song. So that, I never, I never went deep in the questioning about this, but that meant there must not have been an audition that day that I couldn't go in. Or they, or they, or they didn't or audition they Foscas. You know, exactly. they maybe they saw other roles. Um, yes, and and I must have been the first person who came in that on that day that I did go in. Um, I know other people auditioned because I heard from you know some of my colleagues who auditioned. Right. Um, but anyway, um, so it was it was pretty soon thereafter, and I was blown away, and a little intimidated and nervous about it but um, mostly just thrilled, thrilled. And the collaboration in the process was so fascinating and such an education. Um, Watching how these guys worked, watching how they collaborated, seeing how much initially came from James. I mean, I'm sure out of conversations that he and Steve had together because this piece was was Steve's idea. It was Steve's um, idea to to musicalize this piece, mm-hmm. and um, which was based on a a small Italian, not particularly well known novel called Fosca, and then a film. It was Steve's idea, and um, so I'm sure they collaborated just in talking about how to approach telling the story, etc. Which was mostly through these letters. Um, but James would write these scenes and these monologues, and then Steve would set them to music. And I was shocked in some cases at how much of James's poetry, if you will, and it and not if you will, it was poetry. Um, but it sounded like it was coming out of this character's mouth as as the way she talked it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, we would stage the scene as a monologue or a, a, if it was a, you know a scene with dialogue we would stage it and when the music would come in which to me i always said if if it came over my fax machine i always felt like it was like it was like gold that was being spun from a wheel you know that was just like i was that was somehow coming into my hands and i i would cry every time I saw there was a fax from Stephen Sondheim coming in. It was just, of course, 
-hmm. when the two of them are working together, Mm -hmm. what did you witness? Uh, You talked about James's incredible book um, from which so much of this is born and much of it you were saying began, would maybe be a monologue. And then is it that it would go from monologue to song? And did you witness the decision about when that would happen, when things would be sung or when they would remain spoken text? Um, only in the case of the train song, as mm. people call it, or loving you. Okay. Because that was a moment that since the workshop, other company members were saying, this is a song. There's got to be a song here. And I said, you know, well, then it probably will be knowing these guys when they're ready for it to be that, you know? Right. And, um, it was the last piece of music to come in for me. Um, and it, um, so we, you know, played that scene and that scene was rewritten many times because it, the reception, you know, from the audience, it was, it was, so I want to make this clear, Loving You did not exist until we were in previews. It was a scene. And the first night it went in, it was longer. And I was, I got it uh, one night on a day off uh, over my fax machine, you know, and there was a section that preceded loving you before that. There was this kind of rolling, it, it felt like the motion of the train. And, um, and I, What's really unfortunate is that fax paper at that time was that type of weird feeling paper that faded. And I do not have a copy of the original fax of that. Mm. So it literally faded away. I have the faded pages, and I'm sure Steve has it somewhere, and I'm a fool that I have not said, Steve, please can I get that? So I have it. Um, well, I'm sure when he listens to this. <laughs> yes. And you better tune your, in, Mr. Sondheim. Your fax machine is going to start worrying. <laughs> Crank it up, Donna. Crank out the old fax machine. Yeah. Uh, yes, you must so get that, that because so that, that is incredible. Yeah. And so uh, they said, you know, we rehearsed that afternoon, everything, but we didn't rehearse that. And I thought, well, it's not going to go in tonight, of course. And then uh, James said, so let's look at the new song. And um, I said, oh, okay. And uh, I had, I had basically learned it (laughs) because I just, I didn't know what was going to happen with it. And I wanted to, once, once, once I knew who this woman was, And once I was really inside the musical vocabulary of of Steve and Sondheim and and James's direction and and the world they created together in this story, I did not find it difficult to learn the music or the lyrics. It just was further extension, a further extension and further exploration of this person that I felt that I knew very, very well. Mm. And that makes it very 
it makes it's a very different experience, especially when the music and lyrics are so beautifully written, and when they when they've been birthed from or birthed, <laughs> however the hell you say it, from material that you've been playing. I've been playing the intentions and sometimes the actual words, saying the actual words, um, you know, with my scene partner um, already. So we rehearsed it and um, James said, great, let's put it in tonight. And I said, oh, really? I said, well, there's no orchestration, right? And he said, it's okay, we'll just do it with piano. People love that. They It reminds them that it's previews. And um, so now we're like at the end of our rehearsal time for preview period, a few hours in the afternoon. And um, I, you know, have a dinner break. <laughs> and I'm thinking, holy crap, I am doing this tonight. Um, and we did. And we did it that one night was the only time that we did the long version. And I remember I was asked afterwards how I felt about it. And I said, I love it, but I feel a little bit like it's a medley. I feel like the first part is one song and the second part is another. And it feels like the audience, I just wonder if the audience who is questionably tolerant of this character and each of her reappearances to pursue this man that she is obsessed with and is her reason for living at that point. I don't know if they're, you know, ready for, I don't think I said this to them at that time. I, maybe later I did, but, for, but for Fosca's club act. You know, right. where she said, <laughs> uh -huh. So I, um, and James said, I, I don't think there was like a big discussion about it. I, I don't remember that. They just both agreed. Huh. And the next night it would just, they, you know, James wrote some different dialogue leading up to, um, really just the heart of the song. And it's a very short song, but it's, there's a, there's a lot of gravitas to it. Yes. Um, and it made a huge difference in how the audience came to ultimately those who could understand Fosca because it gave them insight into her own knowledge that that loving him and being and him being loved by her was not necessarily something that he would feel good about and you know, it's loving you is not a choice and not much reason to rejoice, but it gives me purpose. It gives me, anyway, I won't just recite the entire song, but so it, people really saw a, a self-knowledge and a vulnerability um, and an intelligence that, I mean, it was hard for me not to under, it was hard for me to understand how people didn't see that. I'm not like patting myself on the back as an actress, but it was just so much a part of I thought who she was, but from a twentieth, a late twentieth century point of view um, and perspective, I think you know there were just people who couldn't get Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction out of their head, right. you know um, right. that kind of stalking. But anyway, so the collaborative the, the collaborative nature was 
was just so constant. And, you know, we were the finale of the show. There were so many versions of that. And there were so many versions of the flashback sequence. And those were the hardest to actually, or the flashback sequence in particular, that was the hardest uh, to keep relearning and, and playing one version at night and learning another one during the day with, you know, sometimes very nuanced differences. But I just felt like it was such a healthy collaboration. And even though we were doing something that was difficult material for certain people to um, take in as, as audience members and, um, and some other actors in the piece felt very difficult to play. I'm not saying it wasn't challenging. It was deeply challenging for me, but it just always felt like I was exactly where I was meant to be. And I so trusted the people I was working with, from Steve and James to the designers, I mean, Jane Greenwood, the detail, like, you know, we'd be doing a fitting and she'd say, oh, I just, oh, I just want to see that little bone right, right at your wrist. Not that, no, no, that bone, that bone. So we're just going to lift this the tiniest bit. See, because you use your hand so much as her. And I, I really... I think people are pay a lot of attention to that. And even if it's only one person, I want maybe somebody's going to notice just how delicate your bones are there, but how that one bone protrudes. And it's just so, you're so vulnerable and, and she's physically so vulnerable. And there's Jane, or like subtly changing the shade of green. Because all I wore, I never, I didn't wear black. I wore different shades of green because she thought, and I agreed that Fosca wanted life. She really wanted life, and she loved nature, and she loved beauty, and she spoke of flowers and gardens. And um, she said, so, you know, these can be very subdued greens, but they did shift, and they shifted with purpose. And then I did wear this red dress um, for the this Christmas party, um, at the end, that was her fancy dress. It was still very modest by comparison to certainly Marin's gorgeous gowns and what would have been the gowns of the period. Um, but, um, you know, Jane was just a genius collaborator, as was every, every member of that design team and my cast. Oh, for God's sake, you know me. I could, I could just go on. When you think about being in such um, a, a serious piece of theater, mm -hmm. um, I know you as a person. I find you to be one of my most hilarious friends. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I'm a goofball. We all know that. Well, we How don't did, all know that, but you know it. I do. How did you resist, <laughs> or did you not resist, bringing that part of yourself? Uh, when that is often so so welcome in the kind right. of things you do, right? So it was interesting because um, I remember James saying to me, "You know, she, she has quite a sense of humor. It's just very dark." <laughs> <laughs> and she did. She used sarcasm, yeah. you know, in a defensive way with um, with Giorgio. Quite often, but also, you know, with with the soldiers. I mean, it was just it was her armor. 
um, and a way to use her intelligence because she had very little outlet for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, but uh, I will say that, you know, there were things that happened on stage, like, and I, I did make a reference in the, in the, um, in my Tony acceptance speech to a mole, a mole joke, you know, so the moles, the the moles on my face, I, I certainly didn't have any moles during the workshop. Okay. And when we were designing her look for Broadway, um, there was lots of conversation about, what they were going to quote unquote do to me mm. to make me less attractive, which always made me laugh because I, I, I'm a vain person and I like to look my best, but I've never thought of myself as a beautiful person. And I have never heard so frequently how attractive I was <laughs> as when I was doing that sh- when I was rehearsing that show or when I was in that workshop and people, oh, you're, t- you're too beautiful. You're too attractive. And I thought, wow, you have to be, be playing somebody for, or at least in my case, I have to be playing somebody who is repeatedly referred to as everything from, you know, hideous to, um, you know, dog-like to grotesque, I mean, just, you know, grotesque, you know, right. and ugly, you know, just on and on and on to, and the flip side is that people will tell you how, how attractive you are and you're not you're not ugly enough you're not unattractive enough and as an actress my my back went up and i was like first of all i am an actress second of all i'm a character actress i can be a leading lady but i'm a character actress and i have been i now recognize blessed at times i thought cursed with features that can go lots of different ways mm. and I promise you, we can do this. And and it would make me nervous when I would hear people saying, you know, how are they going? What are they going to do to you? And I would say, I'm going to act it. It's we'll figure it out. But I did, you know, in the in the novel, there was a reference to Giorgio coming into her room that night that she wrote the letter to to visit her when she was very ill, and the moonlight reflecting off of her extremely high forehead. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was said much more, po- more poetically in the in the book, um, in the novel. But so I had this image of her having this really high forehead, which I do not. And um, so I said, "Do you think we could extend my forehead with, like, you know, in in the wig, in making the wig?" And we tried that, um, and it involved like a small prosthetic just to you know, not have it be a hairline and to, you know, add a little bit more height to my forehead. And, um, it was really tough to do. And James referred to it, you know, as my Star Trek. (laughs) Um, Uh Uh-huh. That um, is a helpful visual aid so we can understand what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I didn't look like I had an ass on my forehead, but I... (laughs) And ultimately they didn't go with that. Well, we did the invited dress, right? And that was the only appearance it made. The ass on your forehead. Yes, he. <laughs> J, I mean, James came and talked to me. He said, "I know you feel strongly about this. I know how hard we worked on this. Mm-hmm. It's too much. Mm-hmm. It's too much." And we're we're realizing how much of this really is coming from what's inside of you. And um, 
So we don't need that. Um, but, and I, do, I, I can't, I honestly right now can't remember whether I also had a mole, also had moles at that point, or if, if, if we then moved to the moles. Right. And so they kept experimenting with the placement of the moles and how many moles there were. And Jerry Schoenfeld, God rest his soul, um, you know, had an opinion. He didn't want any moles on me or, you know, he was literally examined where my moles were each night. Um, he might've been in Marin's dressing room trying to examine, you know, <laughs> got it. <laughs> yeah. Like, he was very he involved. But he was very involved, but right. in my dressing room, all he cared about is where the moles were. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, anyway, and Did so the moles, I was just going to say, in terms of the humor thing, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you, no. just that sometimes they would fall off, and I would come off stage, and I, you know, would let them know. <laughs> And they had to have, you know, like spare moles ready. And one time I came off and I just said, rolling, 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 there's a mole rolling. And that became like this theme song that people would try to crack me up with. Because <laughs> I didn't know where they were, right. you know, on the stage. I didn't know when it came off, but they were glued on by our amazing um, makeup artist, Kelly. Kelly, it's going to kill me not to remember your name, Kelly. And somebody told me that she recently passed away. And that is, I, I mean, literally, Kelly Gleason, she was a genius. And um, I just heard a few months ago that she passed away. And mm. that just broke my heart. But she worked so hard with us. And um, so ultimately, I think I had two moles. And, um, but there was there was humor. I I knew how to laugh my, at myself. I just didn't have a lot of time for it. Mm -hmm. You know, I had quick changes, and I remember like the guys used to say, um, "My quick changes sounded like somebody having um, either like giving birth or having some kind of a seizure." Because first of all, I w they were they were so fast, some of them, and they there there was a lot to be done. And I was preparing for whatever state I was supposed to be in on stage. So I was doing different things to help. I don't mean like hurting myself actually, but, but getting myself worked up into these states or, you know, using my imagination, whatever it took, mm -hmm. but nobody wanted to be near me during those, those fast changes. And there was no like chatting with somebody while I was doing a fast change or doing right. a change. You right. know? Um, so the laughter, I don't think I ever cracked up on stage when we were doing the show, when Peter Gallagher and I were doing the workshop, there was some cracking up that happened. Um, we was he were bad. Giorgio? Was he, he was Giorgio, Giorgio in the workshop. Oh. Yes, he was. He okay. was. And Jerry Shea was, you know, just so delicious and such a beautiful partner. Um, when Peter chose not to do it, and I was, I was there for several auditions. You know, people that I read with, actors who came in, some wonderful people, and um, and Jerry was. There was just a. Well, he wouldn't say there was an ease about it, but the ease in his his goodness and his masculinity and his um, the sort of not knowing 
how to deal with me kindly and and yet tell me get the hell away from me i'm not interested you know he but he just he i thought he had a beautiful you know balance he did that balancing act very wonderfully but i also just want to say that peter did peter was fantastic um but we really cracked each other up mm-hmm. sometimes and <laughs> made james mad a few times um so my humor was you know like after the show before the show occasionally off stage you know if i lost them all um and the guys knew everybody knew i, I love that company so much and i wish that i felt like i had the freedom you know to go out and after the show but i just you know i had to take really good care of myself and my stepdaughter was living with us i think at that time and i just i could be wrong about that she might have been in her freshman year of college no, I don't. I, okay, I don't have the math on that yet. Um, in my head, no, she was. I think she was still living with us, and so, you know, I had to be careful about how I took care of myself and um, get my rest and not, you know, my my vocal. Um, what's the word I'm searching for? Anyway, it's a Joan Later phrase, but just how you take care of yourself vocally and talking in restaurants, you know with a lot of ambient sound is not a good choice when you just need to use all of your energy, really be saving it for the work. And that's what I had to do. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. But I was really in great voice throughout that process because of the work I'd done with Joan and, and really hard work because I had to figure out, I did not want to compromise on some of the physicality choices that I was making. She, so she said, okay, then we have to find where some other place, you know, if you're, if there's a lot of tension in her body, which there is, then we have to find some place that you are releasing it so that you can sing in a healthy way. And when you're singing in a bed and, you know, you have to be supported by a lot of pillows so that you can, you know, maintain this weak countenance that you want to present, but you must be strong in how you are producing the sound. And she very patiently worked with me and design people there worked with me, um, you know, to make that possible. And I was in such good voice that I did two workshops of new musicals while I was doing the show where I actually did, you know, week long workshops of new musicals, not right away, 
But I realized, I said, Joan, do you think I can do this? And she looked at the music for both of these things, and they happened to be pieces that I was singing in my upper range. And she said, it will actually be great for you mm. because it's just going to keep, it's going to stretch this other part of the instrument. If it was something that was asking you to, anyway, I'm, I'm going on, you know, well, it queen, is just, tangent queen. Well, you're the, you're the tangled queen. Um, <laughs> Tangled Tangents. Tangled Tangents with Donna Murphy. That's going to be your podcast. (laughs) Donna, the role of Fosca is one of the most complex, layered, beautiful, memorable, breathtaking uh, performances as embodied by you. In the history of musical theater, I know that that must be a lot to take in. I know you are told that a lot, not just by fans globally, but by Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine. Um, so I just want to thank you for what is truly um, one of the most remarkable conversations where we've really just begun to kind of peel the onion of this incredibly layered performance in this beautiful play that miraculously, as you described earlier, just slid in under the wire to be nominated. And it won Best Musical, which was also this extraordinary feat for all of you. And I want to just ask you a couple of very light questions as we finish up, which is, um, uh, where do you keep your Tony Award? And actually, your awards. Okay, so my my passion, Tony, is here in my little slice of office, as I call it, in my uh, New York apartment. It's on a little shelf area. Um, that is where I keep awards and and some, um, you know, special mementos from that are work related and. Uh, one, I guess, and there's a few photos, but they're work related, except for a photo of Sean and I, mm-hmm. and uh, and a photo of Joel Gray and I. That's a screen cap at at the Oscars one year when I went to the Oscars with him, and it's just the cutest thing. And it sits up there. But my Tony is next to other things that I've been blessed to be honored with, and um, so that's where that my, my passion Tony is. Can I just add a couple of quick things because they're so important in connection with with that night? Of course. First of all, Beverly Randolph was our stage manager, production stage manager extraordinaire. She passed away far too early in her remarkable life. But anybody who's worked with her knows that she was the cream of the crop. And Beverly... Um, asked me about a week before the Tonys if I'd written a speech. And I said, no, no, I, I, I don't, you know, I just, I feel like that's bad luck. And, and not that I'm, it's not about luck, but I just, it doesn't feel, I, I just didn't feel comfortable doing it. And she said, you're going to have to prepare something, Donna, because there's, there's a chance it could happen. And I'm not going to lay odds, tell you what my odds are, you know, that I would lay on it, but you, you don't, you don't want to have some idea of what you want to say. So I started to try to gather my thoughts and between the dress rehearsal our in the morning of the Tonys and my performance of Passion that afternoon, 
she sat in my room, my dressing room with me, and she said, okay, tell me what you're thinking of saying. And I'm going to put a stopwatch on it. <laughs> and I started to talk and she said, oh, you're in big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and so she sat there with me and I did my own, you know, kind of self-editing. And I, it wasn't a speech. It was just, these are the people I wanted to acknowledge. And um, anyway, so she did help me get the time down, uh, and it was within a very reasonable amount, although um, they still started playing that music so soon, and, you know, your your head is just spinning. But she was just so gracious about it, and she was gentle. She wasn't, like, cracking the whip, and she wasn't saying, like, look, you're going to win, honey, so you got to be better be ready. It was nothing like that. It was so gentle, and it was so loving and supportive you know, beyond the call. That's the one thing. The other thing I wanted to mention is that, you know, we performed on the Tonys and that was almost as thrilling or equally as thrilling as, as winning because to stand and we, they did a part of it that they had pre-recorded, And then we did the last section of it live and standing behind that curtain waiting and just looking at all my cast members and waiting for the because we were hearing the pre-recorded section playing, and then we were waiting for the curtain to lift and for I wasn't going to be seen right away. I was going to walk into it, but anyway, I felt so proud, mm. and we did that. It was just one of the most thrilling moments of my life. Period. And then I had to change back, and I'm sure you've heard other people on this on this podcast speak about the you know you're in character for your for the dress rehearsal and then you're you have a show maybe and and no yes and then you have a performance and then you get changed into your glamour donna for um the red carpet and to go sit in your seat and then you go change to be in your fosca costume well my dressing room to get changed was like three flights up in the Gershwin. We were not, they were not at Radio City at that point. And I, and my category was the next category. After our performance and some, I don't, I don't know if they went right to commercial. All I know is I had something like four minutes. So we rehearsed that multiple times in my dressing room. And I somewhat altered my Fosca makeup. I, we, we just didn't do as much of like the, and it was whatever. It was slightly different. I didn't have the circles under my eyes. And I, and Jerry Schoenfeld insisted that I not wear any moles. <laughs> so um, uh, I made it back to my seat just in time for the end of what happened to be a commercial that I was the voiceover for. <laughs> It was Clairol Natural Instincts, and Deborah Messing was the actress on stage. I mean, the actress on camera, and um, and it was my voiceover. And I was sitting there, and and Sean, you know, gave me a kiss, my husband, and he said, "Do you hear your voice?" And I said, "What do you mean? Was was my was my 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 mic on while I was changing? What are you talking about?" He said, "No, right now. Do you hear your voice?" And then I looked up at the screen, and they would up on the big monitors. You could see the whatever was happening on television, televised. And it was this Clairol commercial with my voiceover. <laughs> but I literally was like, and then it was, you know, my category. And Dee Hody was sitting in front of me, and she was a friend of both Sean's and myself. 
and when they announced my name, I leaned forward and I kissed your Dee. wife, Dehody. I kissed my wife, Dehody, and I did not kiss my husband. Well, I know that you kissed him many times that night yeah, and I did. afterwards. Um, I did. Donna Murphy, okay. I love you. I have to thank you so much for being on this show today. My pleasure. And the Tony Goes To is produced by Alan Seals for the Broadway Podcast Network. The music and lyrics for the theme song were written by Georgia Famusa. Theme song orchestration by Alexander Sage Oyen. Episodes are edited by Derek Gunther. Thank you to Parody Bill for the graphics. And please don't forget to go to the iTunes show page and rate and review the show. Thanks for listening. Excerpt from the Tony Awards used with permission of Tony Awards Productions. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.